to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, January 21st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, Jasmine? Um, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. Okay. That snowy weather up there is not taking you out too bad, is it? No, not really. I mean, I, I like the snow, and it's actually not snowing at the moment. Like, we had some earlier in the week, but it's pretty much gone now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, well, I've officially made my move over to California, so I'd like to say it's 65 and sunny. <laughs> okay, and where are you in California? I'm in San Diego. Okay, I've never been. Yeah, it's nice and quiet and clean, so, so far, so good. Okay, well, congratulations, and I hope you enjoy the, the sun or, like, the mild weather. It doesn't sound like it's too hot. Yeah, no, it's pretty, you know, it gets um pretty mild during this time. And, you know, it's perfect for me because I kind of like a little brisk every once mm-hmm. in a while. So I don't mind a little, a little crisp. I just, I'm good. I'm happy to be away from the cold, from the cold for the first time ever in my life. <laughs> yeah. So that's really different. I'm going to have to adjust, but so far, so good. You did your time. Right, girl. 14 whole years. <laughs> yeah. And shout out to Emily out in Spain. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, our local news story, we'll be talking about the tragic fire in the Bronx that killed 17 people and how it's affecting a national discussion on fire safety. Our national news story will be about problems with sewage in Alabama. On world news, we have something really interesting about a landmine detecting rat that passes away. And for good news, we'll be talking about the New York State Fashion Sustainability Act. So we're going to go ahead and kick off this episode with local news. And for this story, I have drawn it from a couple of articles, one on CNN.com titled Space Heater Spark Fire in the Bronx that Killed 70 People, Including Eight Children. Um, The author is Susanna Kalanazes, Brian Gringas, Bunny Cap, Marnie Ashalif, and Amir Vera. And then the second article is Bronx Building Blaze Sparks National Conversation About Fire, Safety, and Racial Disparities. This one is from griot.com, and the author is Chauncey Alcorn. A malfunctioning electric space heater in the bedroom was the source of an apartment building fire on Sunday, January 9th in the Bronx that killed 17 people, including eight children, making it one of the worst fires in the city's history. The five-alarm fire began shortly after 11 a.m. and first consumed a bedroom, then the entire duplex apartment on the second and third floors of a 19-story building. The heat was on in the building, but the space heater was being used to supplement the heat. There were smoke alarms throughout the building, and the first call that came in was due to a neighbor hearing the smoke alarm and looking and seeing the smoke in the hallway. When residents left the fire unit, the apartment door was left open, allowing the blaze to spread to other apartments. The fire was contained to that hallway, but the smoke traveled upwards and took over much of the building. The doors were supposed to close automatically, but the apartment door uh, malfunctioned. And the door from the stairwell to the 15th floor also malfunctioned, leading more smoke to spread throughout the building. The smoke caused a tremendous loss of life and displacement for the residents. 
The fire marshals determined through physical evidence and through firsthand accounts by the residents that the fire started in the bedroom by the portable electric heater. About 200 members of the FDNY responded to the fire that was at 333 East 181st Street. Units arrived on the scene within three minutes of getting an emergency call and found victims on every floor in the stairways. Many of them were in cardiac and respiratory arrest. The families in the apartment complex and the neighborhood told CNN they were devastated. The Red Cross has provided emergency housing to 22 families, representing 56 adults and 25 children. The Bronx Blaze was deemed the second most deadly U.S. fire in nearly 40 years by the National Fire Protection Association. The NFPA also reported that heating equipment is the second leading cause of U.S. home fires and the third leading cause of home fire deaths and injuries. Many of those in the building were Muslim immigrants from the West African nation of Gambia. The country's ambassador told CNN the building had been a beloved home for many such immigrants over the years. For the victims, the mayor stated that the city will work to ensure Islamic funeral and burial rites are respected and will seek Muslim leaders to connect with the residents. The names of those who request government assistance will not be turned over to immigration and customs enforcement, he added. At a news conference, New York Firefighter Union representatives confirmed the building was not required to adhere to city fire codes. The building had no fire escapes, but there were interior fire stairways. Parks Northwest, which is the name of the building, was built in the early 1970s, the New York Times reported, before nearly before newly constructed New York residential buildings were required to have sprinklers, so it by default exposed members to more dangerous atmospheres. The same is true, officials say, for many similar high-rise high -rise public housing complexes throughout major urban centers in the United States, with a disproportionate number of Black and Latino Americans live. An estimated 47% of public housing tenants across the country are Black and Black Hispanic, according to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development data collected in December of 2020. Attorney Robert Valensky represents 22 of the Parks Northwest residents, included in a $3 billion class action lawsuit filed against the city's owners earlier this month. He's also the attorney who represented the surviving victims of the 2017 Bronx fire in a series of lawsuits filed against the building's owner and the city government. He made the following statement to the griot. There is no doubt in my mind that people of color and lower socioeconomic people are subjected to unbelievable risk being in these buildings. Is that the nature of urban living? Probably yes, he said regarding the fire risk that exists in many older residential high-rises where poor locals tend to live. They're not safe, period. I would never live in any of these places. The connection between who dies in major buildings fires has more to do with poverty than race, according to Birgit Mercer-Schmidt, director of the research for the NFPA. There is an undeniable link between poverty and increased fire risk, and that's for sure, she told the griot. It's not because of your race that you are at a higher risk in some of these places. It's because of your income level. But race and poverty in America are often intertwined. Roughly 20% of Americans killed by fires from 2015 to 2019 were Black, according to a report, even though Black Americans only make up 13% of the U.S. population. The largest chunk, 31% of fire deaths, occurred in large central metro areas of the country. Many New York residential complexes built after 1980 were constructed using non-combustible materials and are considered fireproof. 
It's one of the reasons their owners argue installing expensive sprinkler systems isn't needed. Many real estate developers Developers have lobbied against passing laws requiring sprinklers in older buildings that don't already have them. A New York City law requiring residential buildings, buildings taller than 40 feet to install sprinklers was introduced by former City Council member Barry Goldenschnick after the 20, December 2017 Bronx Building fire. No action has been taken on it since the Council's last session in 2021, um, according to some online records. So that is my recap. Um, this is such a sad story. Um, and it seems like it's a lot of stuff that's been on fire in the Bronx. I think there was something actually this morning, another building had caught fire um, in the Bronx. But it's really unfortunate that such a large number of people were killed in this fire. Yeah, it was really, really heartbreaking. And I've seen, you know, some of the images of just, you know, the faces who pass, of the people who passed away. And it's just... You know, it's sad when someone passes away at any age, but, you know, when you see children, it's it's especially heartbreaking because they had so much life ahead of them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really, really terrible. And I, I did watch some of the, um, I guess you call it a press conference, like when the mayor was talking, and I feel yeah. like... Um, there uh, there was a lot of talk about the space heater and like that there was a door that should have been closed that was open and I felt like it was coming across like blaming the people in the situation for what happened and which I don't think is right so if they had to have a space heater on in the winter even though the heat was already on that means it probably wasn't sufficient and, the, you know, apparently those doors were supposed to be doors that close on their own. So they, they weren't, it wasn't working properly. Like it, it wasn't supposed to be up. Oh my God. This cat. I'm sorry. He's kind of going crazy and he did something weird and jumped on me. And I think he scratched me a little bit. You okay? Um, yeah, I'm okay. I don't know what he just. He gets the the zoomies. I don't know if you've had a cat before, but like he just randomly get energy and want to run real fast. Oh, okay. So he's he's turned up for no reason. <laughs> but um, you know, like it's it's not up to the resident to be like checking the doors or whatever. Like those are things that are just fun- features of the housing that should be working properly. Right. You know, and the fact that they weren't is a problem. And I. I would like to know, like, I wonder how many similarities there are between this fire and the one that happened in Philly not that long ago mm-hmm. that was also in public housing where, you know, people, including children, died. Yeah, this makes me, one of the things that I thought about with this story was how there's really no fire safety taught in the hood. You know, like, I know that at my job sometimes, at least a couple times a year, we have to have fire drills that are scheduled, um, and the fire department checks us on that, probably because it's within education. But in these large buildings, there really isn't any level of you know, anything being taught to the residents, you know, sometimes they do or do not have community space. But I feel like when people move in, you know, they they maybe set the apartment up, clean it up, paint it, but there's no true, you know, information available to them or any option when people are going through stuff like this. And if they, there's so many buildings that 
were built beyond the time that they were required for fire safety. That just shows us right there how many more people are in danger because those buildings are all over. Now people are displaced. They don't have money. It's in the middle of the winter. And even with the minimal amount of things that's been given to them to help, it's just so many deaths. It's really sad. It is, you know, and it is important to, like you're saying, um, for people to be aware of, like, in the event of a fire, because it is something that could happen no matter who you are, like, you know, somebody might leave the stove on, there might, like, you could have a freak accident and there's a fire and you should know or be in the habit of knowing, like, how it is you would get out safely. Um, so, yeah, it does make sense that, especially in those types of buildings, like, they probably should be, like, drills or, like, some kind of regular thing where people... Or, you know, because even with that, that if you're doing drills and stuff, you would be able to recognize, like, oh, this resident in this place doesn't have a way to get out. Or, like, someone has to know to help this person to be able to get out of the building, you know. But if you're yeah. not even, if that's not even, like, part of the planning or the way the place is built, it's not going to happen, you know. And then when you do have a tragedy, it's like people are scrambling. Um, but it does seem like it's a bigger, like, infrastructural and neglect issue as opposed to just like, oh, these people, they didn't know what they should have been doing. It, it, I think there's only so much that they could have done. And it just, you know. You know, even the lack of, like, uh, working fire alarm, smoke alarm. Exactly, yeah. You know, batteries being missed, lights being out. A lot of times, simple things like that, elevators being broken, all of these sort of um, things that they just look over in these buildings are really posing harm to people who live in public housing. And it's, it's first of all, inconsiderate, it's outdated, and it doesn't make any sense that nobody's paying attention to this, you know? Why do we have to have tragedy to have a national conversation about something so important? Yeah, it's really... Um, I think we were talking about uh, the tornado warning thing in, wait, what was, what state was that? I think it was in Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. And we started to talk about, because um, it may have been close to the anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire or something, but situations where it's like, because of the people that are most affected by it, it's somehow seen as like acceptable to have people in these situations where it's just not a priority to make the setting safe, you know, because exactly. you don't really see these types of things happening in the rich part of town. Like it's allowed to happen and for stuff to be in disarray, it's allowed to happen if it's primarily affecting poor people, poor immigrants, poor black people, etc. Um, so yeah, that's unfortunately, it's not surprising, but it's still very upsetting. Absolutely. I just really hope that something comes from this that is, you know, a deeper look into these situations and the communities that are affected by the negligence of these large building owners and the city that doesn't care about their safety. You know, uh, you can't do it in retrospect. And there are a couple of celebrities that have been helping out. I've seen a couple articles about Fat Joe and um, Cardi B helping people to pay for the funerals and fly people back and forth. Um, and I know that there has been um, different funds that were collected. I think I read something that said there was two million already collected to help people. But this is not this shouldn't be an afterthought is what I'm trying to say. Um, and a lot of times in these urban communities, they don't have housing insurance and things of that nature as well or um 
you know, so it just really leaves a lot of people vulnerable and, you know, people can't really recover when things like this happen. So uh, prayers up for everybody who was affected by this one, as well as the one in Philly. Uh, but this is definitely something that needs to come to the forefront now and, and stay there so that these buildings can be updated. Yeah, for sure. And we'll be sure to put up um, links to like if there are still places that are collecting funds for the victims. I'm not sure because they have there has been a lot of money so far collected at this point, but there might be an ongoing need. I don't know if there's still donations that are needed. So um, yeah. we'll look into that and put the links up on our Facebook page and also put up some information on our Instagram page as well. And people, please think about this. This could be any of us, you know, have a plan for your family, you know, in regards to what to do in a fire. Maybe if you're hearing this, maybe check your, just check your smoke alarm. Um, just be more mindful because situations like this are really devastating. We we don't want to see this happen to people anywhere. All right. So it's time for us to take our first music break. This track is called Yippee and it's by an artist named Otis McDonald. We'll be right back. you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Emily with our national news story. Take it away. Hi, everyone. Emily Scott here with the national news story. 
this comes from a January 12th New York Times article by Glenn Thrush titled An Alabama Town Sewage Woes Test Biden's Infrastructure Ambitions. The new law allocates $11.7 billion for waste and stormwater projects. Will it get to the impoverished communities who need it most? The article explains, quote, What babbles behind Marilyn Rudolph's house in the rural countryside is no brook. A stained PVC pipe juts out of the ground 30 feet behind her modest, well-maintained house, spewing raw wastewater whenever someone flushes the toilet or runs the washing machine. It is what is known as a straight pipe, a rudimentary, unsanitary, and notorious homemade sewage system used by thousands of poor people in rural Alabama, most of them black, who cannot afford a basic septic tank that will work in the region's dense soil. I've never seen anything like it. It's kind of like living with an outhouse, and I can never, ever get used to it, said Ms. Rudolph's boyfriend, Lee Thomas, who moved in with her three years ago from Cleveland. I've lived with it all my life, said Ms. Rudolph, 60. If any part of the country stands to see transformational benefits from the $1 trillion Infrastructure Act that President Biden signed in November, it is Alabama's Black Belt, named for the loomy soil that once made it a center of slave labor cotton production. It is an expanse of 17 counties stretching from Georgia to Mississippi, where black people make up three quarters of the population. About $55 billion of the infrastructure law's overall funding is dedicated to upgrading systems around the country that handle drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater, including $25 billion to replace failing drinking water systems in cities like Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi. Less attention has been paid to the other end of the pipe. $11.7 billion in new funding to upgrade municipal sewer and drainage systems, septic tanks, and clustered systems for small communities. It is a torrent of cash that could transform the quality of life and economic prospects for impoverished communities in Alabama, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Illinois, Michigan, and many tribal areas. In this part of Alabama, the center of the civil rights struggle 60 years ago, the funding represents a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to finally make things right, if we get it right, said Helenor Bell, the former mayor of Hainville and Lowndes County, who runs the town's funeral home. But while the funding is likely to lead to substantial improvements, there are no guarantees it will deliver the promised benefits to communities that lack the political power or the tax base to employ even the few employees needed to fill out applications for federal aid. I am very worried, said Catherine Coleman Flowers, a MacArthur Fellow whose 2020 book Waste highlighted the sanitation crisis in Lowndes County. Without federal intervention, we would would have never had voting rights. Without federal intervention, we will never have sanitation equity. Mark A. Elliott Uh, an engineering professor at the University of Alabama, is quoted as saying, My hope is that at least 50% of this money goes to the people who are in most desperate need, not for helping to subsidize the water bills of wealthy communities. Sanitation is a human right, and these people need help. Quote, Straight pipes are just one element of a more widespread breakdown of antiquated septic tanks, inadequate storm sewers, and poorly maintained municipal systems that routinely leave lawns covered in foul-smelling wastewater even after a light rainstorm. The infrastructure package targets funding toward, quote, disadvantaged areas like Hainville and surrounding towns. Part of the Biden administration's goal of redressing structural racism. 
Yet the infrastructure package gives states broad latitude in how to allocate the funding, and it continues no and it contains no new enforcement mechanisms once the money is out the door. Quote, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is administering the program, said in November that the first tranche of funding for drinking water and wastewater projects, $7.4 billion, would be sent to states in 2022, including about $137 million for Alabama. Guidelines for the usage of the funds will not be finalized until closer to the end of this year, 2022. Quote, the state government has done little to address the problem on its own over the years. In November, the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, citing the Civil Rights Act of 1964, opened an investigation into charges that Alabama had discriminated against black residents in Lowndes County by, di- by offering them diminished access to adequate sanitation. One of the most significant recent efforts to address the problem came not from an official state initiative, but from the work of a top state health department official. Sherry Bradley created a demonstration project to install more than 100 modern septic systems in Lowndes after cobbling together $2 million from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and wrenching $400,000 from the state. Other projects, including improvements in the town of Whitehall in Lowndes, have also been one-offs, disconnected from any larger plan to address the problem systemically. The infrastructure bill... uh, should should change that dynamic, Biden administration officials said. Efforts to create a more comprehensive approach are underway, albeit slowly. Representative Terry A. Sewell, an Alabama Democrat who represents a majority black district, has begun reaching out to local officials to compile a list of projects to prioritize. Quote, Ms. Rudolph, who lives just outside of Hainville in the tiny town of Tyler, was one of only a few people willing to talk about their straight pipe system, although they are ubiquitous. Walking down the hill, Miss Rudolph said it was important for people to see how hard she worked to keep the pipe clean and unclogged. She also wanted outsiders to understand the bitter hardship of it all. We cannot put the toilet paper in the toilet like other people, Ms. Rudolph said. We have to put it in the trash. Uh, So I picked this story because I thought it was a really important one for people to talk about more. I had no idea that the sanitation and wastewater uh, system or lack thereof in parts of the U.S. were so um, in need of upgrades. I just really didn't know that they were at such a such in such a state. And I think it should definitely be something that is talked about more on the national level for sure. And on the inequity of it all, too, and how it's, you know, once again, it, it tends to be the same communities that have to deal with the same bullshit over and over and over again. Um, thank you so much for that story, Emily. Um, definitely something important. I know, I think I may have done the uh, national story on that infrastructure bill when they were trying to decide on it. And it's interesting to see that these are the communities that it sounds like it was designed um, to help. However, they don't have any formalities on how the money should be allocated once it reaches the state. And that brings me right. a little anxiety, you know, because obviously there's a huge need in these communities that's unlike any other community that exists within those states. It's right. It's different, you know? Yeah, and it's, that's part of why I always cringe whenever you see, instead of something just being done from the top down, um, it's always sort of, it just feels like passing the buck in a way. 
Right. Because it's like right. if you, it, it kind of reminds me of um, what I just, like what's happening with these masks, like that they're going to be sent to, instead of being sent like directly to people via the mail, for example, or something mm-hmm. like that, they're being sent to community centers or something like that. And it's like, okay, but then that creates a whole other level of like, how is it going to get from the community center to the people? How are you going to make sure that people aren't going to take twice as many as they need for themselves and then other people who couldn't go don't get any? It's kind of like that same thing. It's like if you just, oh, it's like, well, it's up to the states now to then distribute the money. It's like, so then how are people, do people even know how to do the applications or whatever, like to get the grants? Like there's just so many barriers that then get put in place and it's very easy for the money to get squirreled away, wasted goes to people you know who are scamming the system like people that don't need the assistance like somehow getting the money it's yeah and you see all these new developments and all these other things and cities that happen to make the landscape better and make it more attractive to big business but it's not going within the communities that it was that is right that's you know the, the fact that flint is still dealing with a water crisis after all this time shows you right then and there that when funding is allocated, because you know there's been something that's been allocated over the years in different forms, but it's still not reaching where it needs to go. And I thought uh, there was a very interesting quote from Emily's story where she said, um, sanitation is a human right. That's been an issue across the world in many different communities. Um, And, you know, not every country has um, state and city um, assistance or development even the way we do in the states but it doesn't even matter how developed it is it's still an uneven distribution a lot of times right and you know I think I was looking at a different article um, I think 60 Minutes did a story about this not too long ago and one of the interviewers was talking about um, not expecting like naming other countries where they've seen this type of thing Um, where the sewage is, you know, obviously a huge problem, people can get very sick from that. Like it not only is um, unsightly or embarrassing, and I'm sure like that does a lot to you emotionally to feel like ashamed and stuff Mm -hmm. of the way, and it's not your fault, you know, and the person at the end that Emily was talking about, you know, being so concerned with like making sure people know that like she does her best to try to keep the place clean like that's a really big psychic burden on you because no matter what you do if if it's just set up that way you're gonna have that smell you're gonna have the self-consciousness of like you can't I've like I've traveled to places where you can't flush the toilet because the, the system is just not able to handle paper at all so you have to put it in the trash, which, you know, if you're accustomed to being able to um, flush it or you know that that's like the standard in most of the United States, it's really striking that there's this whole swath of the country where that's not the norm because it's not possible. You know, yeah. it's it's really it's upsetting. And, you know, people get cholera all types of yeah all really types nasty of... stuff from like improperly treated sewage yeah 
Yeah, and it affects all the other things around there, the businesses, the way that um, healthy food comes in and out of those communities as well, and it's maintained. So, you know, I think it's good that this infrastructure bill is highlighting the need for American infrastructure to be updated and considered as something important. Because I don't remember this being a conversation, quite frankly, in the last administration or even the one before that. I mean, I'm there. I'm sure there was efforts being made in, in different places, but that this is a national conversation is a good thing. However, we have to have more um, instruction, collaboration, whatever you want to call it, on the local level to ensure that this funding and these processes get completed to the people they're supposed to serve. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's, it, it really does make you wonder because it makes me think of, um, we just talked about what happened with the Bronx fire and people will see a huge number and they're like, oh, wow, that's great. There's all this money. But then when you look closer, it's like, but where did it go? And like, exactly. I know some people were wondering and trying to keep a close eye on if the money is being donated through certain types of channels or it's, you know, going through certain offices, then right. how much of that big amount gets eaten up in other things that don't go directly things. to yeah. the people, you know? So you might see a headline like, Oh, these sound like huge numbers, like billions of dollars for fixing this. Like you would think, of course it'll be fixed, but you know, states and like this once you get down to the nitty-gritty of it like how it's actually going to reach the people like there's so many stops along the way that chips away yeah. at it yeah and fixing it so that it's sustainable for a long period of time you know we don't need no band-aid solutions for problems that have been um occurring in these communities for so very long like this really needs to be designed to sustain itself over the next 15 20 years and have a plan for it to be um, monitored and the upkeep to be something that's important to the local officials for sure um, so great story great discussion right this was an important one uh, we're going to go ahead and take our next music break before hopping into the world news story and some good news. This track is called Santo, and it is by Christina Aguilera and Ozuna. We'll be right back. Por un minuto desaparecí, y en un ratito tú estabas ahí. Yo vine para arriba hasta abajo pa' mí, no pensar en el Sálvame, que tú me tienes peleando, que en prueba vuelve en que yo te digo hasta cuando. Santo, sálvame, que tú me tienes peleando, te gusta quédate, que yo te digo hasta cuando, hasta cuando, cuando. Tranquila, no me mide el tiempo, perrea y gozate lo que tiene talento. Si tú fueras una mentira, contigo yo miento. Si fuera cristiana yo viviera en el templo como hace, así como hace, como arrebarte todas las bases, nena. Así como suena, me gusta reina como Selena. Ahora píntate bailame con tu paco alto, más peligrosa que el impacto de un rifle de asalto. Más como lo canto, tú eres un encanto, el pantaloncito bajo en la cintura levanto. Ahora píntate bailame con tu paco 
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. And now we will go right into our world news story. Jasmine, you're up. Um, so this one, I, I thought it was um, a little bit sad, kind of bittersweet, but very interesting. Uh, this comes from AP News, and the title is Rat Who Detected Landmines in Cambodia Dies in Retirement. And this story came out on the 12th, uh, so um, about 10 days or so ago. Uh, a landmine-detecting rat in Cambodia who received a prestigious award for his life-saving duty has died in retirement, the charity for which he had worked has announced. Magawa, an African giant poached rat, passed away last weekend, uh, so that would be like the first weekend of uh, January, said an announcement on the website of APOPO, a Belgium-headquartered nonprofit group. The organization trains rats and dogs to sniff out landmines and tuberculosis. All of us at APOPO are feeling the loss of Magawa and are grateful for the incredible work he's done, the announcement said. Magawa was born in November 2013 in Tanzania, where APOPO maintains its operational headquarters and training and breeding center. He was sent to Cambodia in 2016, so when he was three years old. The death of Magawa was announced a day after three mine removal experts working for another group were killed by an accidental explosion of an anti-tank mine in Cambodia's northern province of Priya Vihir. Almost three decades of civil war that ended in 1998 left Cambodia littered with landmines and other unexploded ordnance that continues to kill and maim. 
According to APOPO, Magawa detected more than 100 landmines and other explosives during his five-year career before retiring last year. His contribution allows communities in Cambodia to live, work, and play without fear of losing life or limb, said the group. In 2020, the rat also won a gold medal from the Britain-based People's Dispensary for Sick Animals, considered the highest award for gallantry an animal can receive. African giant poached rats are believed to be especially well-suited for landmine clearance because their small size lets them walk across minefields without triggering the explosives. In retirement in Cambodia's northwestern province of Siem Reap, Magawa was housed in his usual cage and fed the same food, mostly fresh fruit and vegetables that sustained him during his active career. To keep him trim, he was released for 20 to 30 minutes a day into a larger cage with facilities such as a sandbox and a running wheel. His death at eight years of age was not unusual for the species. Um, so, and this is a little bit from um, a BBC article about when he retired, uh, his handler's name was Malen. And she said at his retirement that the seven-year-old African giant pouch rat was slowing down as he reached old age and she wanted to respect his needs. Um, so the, the way that it works is the rats are trained to detect a chemical compound within the explosives, meaning they ignore scrap metal and can search for mines more quickly. Once they find an explosive, they scratch the top to alert their human coworkers. So Magawa, uh, the rat who just passed away, was capable of searching a field the size of a tennis court in just 20 minutes, something that APOPO says would take a person with a metal detector between one and four days. Um, and this is, again, his handler. Magawa's performance has been unbeaten, and I have been proud to work side by side with him. He is small, but he has helped save many lives, allowing us to return much-needed safe land back to our people as quickly and cost-effectively as possible. Um, and just before I finish this up, this is just some general information from Wikipedia. Um, so Cambodia is a country in Southeast Asia that has a major problem with landmines, especially in rural areas. Uh, so as was mentioned earlier, like there were several decades of war, which took a severe toll on the Cambodians, and the country has some 40,000 amputees, which is one of the highest rates in the world. The Cambodian Mine Action Center estimates that there may be as many as four to six million mines and other pieces of unexploded ordnance in Cambodia. Some estimates, however, run as high as 10 million mines. So, you know, they were placed there by several factions, um, including the L-O-N-N-O-L, Lan Nol, the Khmer Rouge, the United States, the Hang Samrin and Hun Sen regimes, as well as the coalition government of Democratic Kampuchea, which clashed during the civil war in Cambodia. Um, so these mines were placed in the whole territory of the country. Uh, and one of the big problems that people in Cambodia face with these mines is that even the people who place them don't remember them a couple of years later. So like, they're not able to easily depend on people to remember where the mines had been placed. 
uh, which is where these uh, specially trained animals come in. Wow, that is quite an interesting story. Magua is his name? Magawa. It's M-A-G-A-W-A. And, you know, I think he's very cute. Like, we talked about rats on a different story a (laughs) few weeks ago. He's got got his little, he's got his, his metal. You see, like his um Aww. his his pride his thing that he's got on his chest, and wow. he has his little um you know what you what do you call a harness because they you know have them on like a leash or some kind of thing where they can bring them back. Um, but I thought it was really cool. Like I, that's it's kind of incredible that they can search a piece of land so big so quickly, and yeah. what that would be in human time. That was very interesting. And he saved so many lives. And, and that number of amputees. Oh, my goodness. I've never heard anything like that. That's wild. I had, like, it's something that I had definitely heard about. And I'm sure, you know, this was, he was specifically working in Cambodia. But it's definitely not just that country. But it's a huge, huge problem. Because they would be just put everywhere. Like, and you know you're just trying to live your life you and your kids or whatever and like at any given moment you might step on something you know even if they're very old so yeah it's like you can have so many put down in one place like in the course of like a year so if you imagine if it's been decades wow with all these different groups putting bombs down like yeah it's really scary so I I think it's it's an interesting program and I hope that you know it's well funded and that that, you know they have all the resources they need to keep that work going because I'm sure he's just you know they live in the the good life right like he was eating his good food and taking care of people though he's a legend you know like sniffing out you know just going about his merry way like very limber very fast Wow, you know, and you can yeah. save people so much like devastation, like if you know this is done consistently. Wow, that was great, great story. Thanks, Jasmine. Yes, and thank you, Magawa. Well, rest in peace, rest Magawa. In peace, Magawa. He's no longer with us. Rest in peace. And finally, Emily, please grace us with the good news for today. This is Emily Scott back for the good news. Uh, I found this story via that weekly Future Earth Good News Tuesday roundup on Instagram, which I talk about semi-frequently on the show. Um, and the information from this for the story comes from a January 7th New York Times article by Vanessa Friedman titled, New York Can Make History with a Fashion Sustainability Act. The article explains, quote, on Friday, the Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act, or Fashion Act, was unveiled. A bill that, if passed, would make New York the first state in the country to pass legislation that will effectively hold the biggest brands in fashion to account for their role in climate change. Sponsored by State State Senator Alessandra Biaggi and Assemblywoman Anna R. Kells, Uh, And backed by a powerful coalition of nonprofits focused on fashion and sustainability, including the New Standard Institute, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, as well as the designer Stella McCartney. The law will apply to global apparel and footwear companies with more than $100 million in revenues doing business in New York. Uh, That is pretty much every large multinational fashion name, ranging from the very highest end, 
uh, LVMH, Prada, Armani, to such fast, uh, fast fashion giants as Sheen and Boohoo. Specifically, it would require such com- companies to map a minimum of 50% of their supply chain, starting with the farms where the raw materials originate through factories and shipping. They would then be required to disclose where in that chain they have the greatest social and environmental impact when it comes to fair wages, energy, greenhouse gas emissions, water and chemical management, and make concrete plans to reduce those numbers. When it comes to carbon emissions, specifically in accordance with the targets set by the Paris Climate Accords. Finally, it would require companies to disclose their material production volumes to reveal, for example, how much cotton or leather or polyester they sell. All of that information would also have to be made available online. Uh, Quote, companies would be given 12 months to comply with the mapping directive, 18 months for their impact disclosures, and if they are found to be in violation of the law, they would be fined up to 2% of their annual revenues. Those fines would go to a new, com- a new community fund administered by the Department of Environmental Conservation and used for environmental justice projects. The New York Attorney General would also publish an annual list of companies found to be non-compliant. While similar legislation regarding due diligence is being debated in the European Union, and while Germany, France, Britain, and Australia have laws requiring due diligence when it comes to human rights and slavery, there is no general legislation in any country governing the greater social and environmental actions of the fashion industry and mandating change. In 2010, California passed the Transparency and Supply Chains Act, which addresses modern slavery. In 2019, banned, the sale, banned sales of new fur products. And last year passed the Garment Worker Protection Act. But the New York Act focuses on the manufacturing end of the business broadly defined. Fashion is one of the least regulated industries, said Maxine Bedat, the founder of the New Standard Institute. In part, that is because its sprawling supply chain can include multiple countries and continents. As a result, efforts at sustainability vary widely. Imposing government regulation would would regularize the reporting and make sure there isn't a competitive disadvantage to doing the right thing, Ms. Badat said. Though uh, many brands have become increasingly vocal in acknowledging their own responsibility when it comes to climate change and human rights violations, efforts to rectify the situation have been left up to the companies and an assortment of non-governmental watchdog consortiums like the Fair Labor Association, which addresses wage, isu- wage issues, and HIG, which addresses supply, supply chain reporting. They can vary widely. Via email, Ms. Biaggi told the Times that she, quote, said she expected that some companies impacted by this legislation won't initially support these new standards. She added, this diverse and active coalition makes me confident we can pass this legislation in both chambers later this legislative session. So here's hoping this legislation is passed and that efforts like these continue to grow worldwide because fashion and fast fashion is a huge uh, contributor to uh, climate change and, you know, gas, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and all that bad junk. And that is my good news for the week. Okay. That was a great story. I think it's interesting as well. You know, you highlighted some of those industries that are affected by fashion and fast fashion. I've never heard it um, referred to by that. But also um, the social economics of people in countries not being paid to do the work as well. That's a huge factor um, that 
people don't consider. I mean, they talk about it, but what's really been done to protect workers um, in factories or anywhere else around the world that are producing all of this, uh, these textiles as such, you know, large amounts. So that that's pretty dope. I think that's good regulation, right? Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't aware that fashion is considered to be one of the least regulated in- industries. That was news to me. But yeah, you know, I guess it does it make, make sense. sense when you have so many places are involved. It's like exactly. before the piece of the garment gets to you, there's so many different countries and different laws and things yeah. like that. So I imagine okay. it is super loose and like hard to control. Yeah. And this not only will help with regulating, but it'll also like, you know, maybe help with best practices because some some um, companies may know better ways to do stuff, better ways to source materials and uh, better ways to just be more green in their processes. So hopefully it'll be shared information as well. Yeah, I mean, we can hope so. You don't want to have a situation where I know with some of the carbon taxes and things like that it's like you're basically just saying well if you pay this much money you know like and if the company is already making so much they might be willing to just see that as like the cost of doing business is to pay a fee instead of changing um yeah but who knows like maybe that won't be the case and if it is passed like it will prompt some you know actual innovation to stop putting so much like harm like harmful stuff into the environment through the cloak because it's it's really disturbing and scary like how much junk goes gets into the environment from fast fashion um and things just being dumped and there's just so much overproduction so something has to something's got to give that's right hopefully this will be a good change But that was a great story. Thank you so much, Emily. And that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is Free Mind by Tim's. Have a great weekend and a great Sunday. Have a great weekend. Have a good Sunday. And I'd like to shout out my grandmother, Yvonne, in the Black Belt of Alabama, like since that part of the, the state got got some attention today on the show. So bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
cannot buy. Send me a love that you cannot mix. One is the joy that you cannot waste. And the other one price that you cannot fix. This is the peace that you cannot buy. Finding a way where you cannot see. Man with this system, you cannot pray. I need to find release. But behind my mind. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Radio Free Brooklyn is proud to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rocking music. Join us on Friday, January 28th at 7.30 for a night with 7th grade girl fight, dirt bikes, cryo child, and castle black at none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida at 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue. Proof of vaccination is required for entry as per New York City law.